The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put a breakpoint in your morning routine and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 254 with guest John Lamb, recorded live Tuesday, May 29th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, by bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site for your team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who wonders if John Lamb's birth mother's name was Mary... I'm sorry, Carl wrote that joke. Carl wrote that one. Carl Franklin! Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here with another show. Hey, Richard. Hey there. Enjoying the summertime. Summer's wonderful here. Yeah, well, always have a good time. We've got a crazy summer ahead of us because both of us are turning 40. That's right. Well, you know, we, it was funny. One of our friends said, hey, I want to send Richard some uh, booze and, you know, some bourbon. And I said, well, you can't really do that. Yeah, you can't. Can't uh, send booze to Canada. If cannot send United booze States. to Canada. But you know what? Yeah, I can't send booze to the U.S. either. It's right. The, booze crossing the border is a big deal. But we can certainly buy some when you get here. Yes. Yes, and, and that much we do, and and I and I still thank you for my Christmas present, which is that Scotch Tasters Club here in Vancouver, which I've been imbibing in regularly. Well, you know, it's very you're very hard to buy for. <laughs> he is the toy boy, ladies and gentlemen. After all, there isn't anything that I could say. Ooh, that's neat. Richard would like that that he probably hasn't already got or hasn't got a plan to get. So, all right, you got a framework for me? I do. It's time for better know a framework. <laughs> I don't know, Richard. Maybe we should change that goofy music. <laughs> I didn't create it. It's nothing I have to worry about. You know, what was it that convinced me to say, yes, that's the stuff right there? I don't know. <laughs> Laziness, maybe. I don't know. All right. Well, anyway, today's uh, today's class is uh, system.componentmodel.booleanconverter. Just like the name implies, it converts... Boolean values to other values and it converts other values to Boolean values. Now, cool. well, not so cool. I mean, uh, just because, uh, I haven't used this before, I fired up Visual Studio and got a little console application going and decided to take it for a spin. And of course, it's easy to take a string like true, T-R-U-E, and convert that. But what about yes and no? Right. Turns out, not so easy. No, no? It, it throws an exception on yes and no. I tried converter.convert in uh, converter.convert from string, converter.convert from invariant string, and none of them could handle the word yes or no. Or Y or N? I didn't try no and I didn't try Y, but, you know, yes doesn't work, which I would think would be valuable in a Boolean converter. Right. Also, I tried convert passing in a number that was non-zero, hoping to get one, and it threw an exception on that, too. And the, and the reality is this thing, if you give it true, it gives you back one. Well, if you give it uh, the string true, it'll return back a Boolean true. Right. A Boolean data type. That's the whole idea. That yes. It, 
But, you know, Visual Basic language has a lot of that stuff built right in. You can say if, and then any, you know, any sort of expression, um, well, not any sort of expression, but if you give it a number and it's non-zero, you'll get a, you'll get a true. Right. And the, the Boolean converter doesn't do that. So am I missing something, kids? I don't know, but I thought you should know it anyway. That, uh, that it is there. It's the system.componentmodel.booleanconverter, and that's our class for today. Cool. I got one email for you, and this is from a fellow named Paul Jackson. And it's about the Enterprise Architectures with Roger Sessions show, if you may recall. Ah, yes. I really enjoyed. It was a little offbeat. Uh, Roger and I have worked together in the past, and uh, we got some pretty good reactions from it. And this is one of them. Uh, the obligatory opening. I'm reading the email here. You guys rock. I rarely blog about .NET Rocks or any specific episode that Pwop has published. This is generally because I think all of your content is golden. Therefore, all episodes have equal value in billing in my eyes. They should be all listened to twice at least. Wow. However, the most recent broadcast warrants some additional comment. He's talking about uh, Roger Sessions' show. It rocks. I have done a post encouraging all people if there are any way whatsoever involved in the architecture of an enterprise, right from requirements to implementation, to need to take an hour out of their day and listen to this episode of .NET Rocks. The pieces that really struck home for me were the elements on the pointless nature of canonical forms. For example, what is a customer? Yeah, really. Can we move on now? Man alive. If I hear that just one more time, I'm gonna... And the other point was, I'm gonna what? What did he uh, say? He just left it there. You know, he's from the UK. He's not gonna <laughs> tell you. He's just, he's too polite for that. The common problem of delivery of quality software to the tumbleweeds. Yeah. Which I guess really talking about, you know, getting it out there. It was very refreshing to hear someone with experience who is not a blue badge, who also has credibility within the industry talking pragmatically and honestly about architecture. Carl and Richard, I thank you for all your content, Run As, Hansel Minutes, and Mondays, very much included. And also thank Roger for this particular episode. Kind regards, Paul Jackson. And this is from his blog, a blog post as well. He sent it to us an email. Uh, his blog site is compilewith.net. Oh, neat. Isn't that a great yeah. URL? Yeah. So compilewith.net. Thanks again, Paul. Really appreciate the email. I really enjoyed uh, Roger's show as well. I really thought he brought some clean thinking around what's hard and what's easy and where you need to focus your attention. Absolutely. And uh, before we get into it here, I just want to remind people that if you're thinking about changing jobs, why not think about moving to New York City for a year and you can live uh, in an apartment in Manhattan rent-free for a year and work with some really fun people, friends of ours down there at Infusion. They're sucking up .NET Rocks listeners left and right to go down to New York and do what needs to be done. And if you're interested in this, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6 and read all about it. All right. And here's John Lamb. John recently emigrated from Canada to the Microsoft Republic. <laughs> His bio, not mine. He wrote that. <laughs> to join the Dynamic Language Runtime Team, or the DLR team. He works on the Iron Ruby implementation and pitches in where necessary on the DLR and on integration with partners like the Silverlight team. Before he joined Microsoft, he created Ruby CLR, an innovative, high-performance, open-source bridge between the Ruby interpreter and the CLR. You can track what John is doing with Iron Ruby and the DLR via his blog at www.iunknown.com, which Brilliant. is probably the best blog name I've ever heard. <laughs> Welcome, John. Yeah, so thanks for having me, guys. Well, it's been, you know, we've we had to get to 240 some odd shows before we finally, you know, got you on. We're sorry about that. Well, I was on uh, that random show that you guys did while you were drunk at um, Fenway, Fenway Park. Park? That one? Yeah. That's right. That was a good yeah, one. That was my first ever appearance. <laughs> I was as drunk as you were. <laughs> Hopefully, we were not too embarrassed by whatever we. I yeah, would point uh, out I was not on that show. Yeah, you weren't uh, there. You were in, you were enjoying your uh, your your beer somewhere else. Yeah, I think I was drunk somewhere else. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I'm smart enough to stay away from microphones when I get <laughs> beer into me. The first time we met, John, I think, was in the speakers' lounge at a Dev Connections long, long ago. Oh man, yeah, yeah. That was when I got roped into being a uh, the. The, the track share for C-sharp and C++, I think, for, for that thing. Right. And, uh, oh, right. Yeah, because, you know, 
you know, back then, I guess nobody was really doing much stuff with C++. And I put together, like, this awesome track of, you know, all these, these great guys, like Stan Lippman, right, one of the co-inventors of C++ mm-hmm. was presenting there. And I was just so, like, shocked to find that only, like, 15 people show up in his talk. Hmm. It's like, right. this is you know? the guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he was the guy, right? You know, him and Bjarne. And, yeah. uh, you know, and he was there and 15 people showed up. Uh, so, like, I guess it kind of shows the sign of the times. I remember you, I remember a quote from you, and this was, you probably don't remember talking about this, but you said, I'm really getting into code generation. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we all Long have our ago. little, like, you know, mistakes and, you know, thought traps <laughs> and stuff in our lives, right? You know? uh, yeah. When I was more younger and more foolish, right, I believed in this kind of stuff. And to a certain extent, I still like that stuff. It's just, um, it allows you to solve certain sets of problems. And, you know, code generation was one way of solving those problems. But, you know, what's interesting is that anyone that kind of goes down the code generation path kind of inevitably at some point in time um, winds up discovering Lisp at somewhere, right? Like if you follow that trail far enough, right, it gets you to Lisp. All roads lead to Lisp. Yeah, yeah. And indirectly, if you ever get that far, right, at some point in time you'll discover dynamic languages along the way. And then you'll find that while not an awful lot of people use Lisp anymore, a lot of its ideas kind of live on in other languages. So the dynamic language runtime, this is the first time we've really officially talked about it on the show. Tell us about it. So the the DLR is um, essentially a layer of software, right? The, the um, layers on top of the CLR, and what it enables is a, a couple of things, right? Um, one thing that it enables is different dynamic languages, like say you know Iron Ruby and Iron Python, um, to share a common type system. And by being able to share a common type system, they have the ability to um, you know interoperate with each other, right? The different languages. Um, you know, I can call some, so from Ruby, I can call some Python code, and from Python, I can call some Ruby code. And uh, and it should just all work, right, and that kind of thing. And, of course, both languages can call any .NET libraries, which are generally written in C Sharp. And so we get interoperation with um, a static language as well. So that's the first thing the DLR um, does for people. Now, when you um, say integration with static languages, I'm thinking that can get awfully confusing and complex be, when you have, like, a say, a class in Ruby or I am Python, that maybe inherits from a C-sharp class and you go to, like, add some stuff to it dynamically, does that right. work? Is, are there situations where it bonks on you? It depends on which direction that you want to. So you can you can absolutely go off and, um, and derive a new type in Iron Python from a C-sharp type, right? What you can't do right now is go the other way, right, which is derive a new type in C-sharp from an Iron Python type. Right. Um, and we're still thinking about you know, things that we may or may not enable. And this is, you know, because the DLR isn't complete yet, um, about whether or not we would like to enable cross-dynamic language, right? Because it, it right. gets really strange, right? Because JavaScript, used, which uses prototype-based inheritance, right? Yep. Um, you know, take that and try and derive a, a Ruby class from that thing, right? Well, what would that look like, right? So, you know, so those are the kinds of levels where, you know, we still have to kind of think whether or not the the engineering effort required to build something like that would be worth um, would be worth it, right, in return for whatever crazy thing you can do with that, or whether or not people will just find out some other way of doing the same kind of thing without having to use that particular feature. So did uh, did you consult, or are you in the process of consulting with some of the people on both sides of this uh, technology, on the Ruby side, on the Python side, and on the, on the uh, .NET side? Yeah, so the nice thing about the DLR um, group is, so our group itself at Microsoft has the charter for building two languages, right? So we're building both Iron Ruby and Iron Python. And both of those languages are going to be released under the Microsoft Permissive License, which is our BSD-style license, um, in full source code form, as well as the DLR itself is also going to be released under MSPL on uh, on CodePlex. Yeah. And... Um, we also have two additional partner teams um, that work with us as well. So one team is the um, the, the JavaScript team, and uh, so the so they're building the managed JavaScript implementation. Um, and the other team is. Oh, I'm sorry. Just a moment. Yeah, Did you say managed JavaScript? <laughs> you can't just say that. <laughs> yeah, we can't let Come that slide. <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm able to deal with the Ruby thing. I mean, it freaks me out a little. But did you say managed JavaScript? <laughs> yeah, yeah, managed JavaScript. And oh, um, oh, jeez. <laughs> so yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. Just wait a minute. Let's just pause and let let's that just, sink let's in. Let's just gnaw on that for a minute. <laughs> What does managed JavaScript really look like? Wow. So 
just to be clear, this isn't um, JScript.net, right? Um, this <laughs> not. Is, yeah. So this is an implementation that targets ECMAScript 3.0, the ECMA 3 spec. Okay. And um, so this thing's going to run in, you know, on top of DLR. Um, since the DLR runs inside the browser, you know, we can certainly run, you know, manage JS inside of the browser as well. Um, one of the things that we want to try and get out of this thing is better performance, right, out of the implementation, right, while being, you know, absolutely adherent to um, the ECMA 3 uh, ECMAScript 3 um, standard as well. But you are, I mean, because essentially you're getting away from the interpretive form of JavaScript. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, mm. so it's, to be clear, right, um, all of the code that we generate for any of the languages run on top of the DLR ultimately gets compiled into IL, right? So that's, right. you know, that is the ultimate end yeah. game for all of this stuff. Yeah, this is just another layer before you get to the IL. Sure. Yeah. Well, this is a layer on top of the CLR, isn't it? Exactly, the, yeah. Yeah. So we are still using the CLR type system. We're still using the CLR garbage collector, JIT, and, you know, the rest of that stuff. So right? you're basically just, just trying to figure out what the heck is this that I'm looking at and what slot does it fit in, in the, on the CLR side? Exactly, yes, yeah. yes. So, you know, um, so Jim Huguenin is the um, the architect on, uh, on the DLR team. And uh, so Jim has already put a couple of posts up on his blog as well, right, which, uh, which talk about, you know, some of the type system things. And, and uh, Jim's the, the, iron, the Python guy. Yeah, he's You're also, the Ruby guy. He's the Python guy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Mac and PC guy, right? There you go. <laughs> right, because, you know, we, we come from different things, right? Like, so if you think about a Python, right, Python is kind of a, you know, as dynamic languages go, it's a much more cloistered, like, you know, s- you know straight kind of language, right? Right. Um, whereas Ruby's more of a kind of free love kind of language. Okay, so he's got a tie, and you've yeah, exactly. got I've got sandals. I'm wearing black and stuff. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> More the hemp short thing. Exactly, yeah. Okay. What is the fixation with Ruby? I mean, you've done a lot. You got so into Ruby, you wrote your own compiler for it, for crying out loud. Well, I didn't write a compiler. I wrote a, I wrote a bridge, right, which allowed right. Um, Ruby code that runs in the existing um, Ruby-based interpreter to talk to .NET stuff. Um, so that was the Ruby CLR project I did before um, coming to Microsoft. Which was very um, interesting, by the way. I yeah, mean, it was a really cool t- piece of technology, and you know, it still is. There's people using it. I still get people telling me that they're using it, so I'm I'm happy that you know it hasn't died, right? And and the rest of that, and there's people still actively maintaining it and that kind of stuff. So that that's good. Um, and the nice thing about it is it allowed people to get up to speed really, really quickly, right? Which is, you know, I've got a bunch of Ruby code that already works, and I just want to talk to you know this or that .NET library, right? And I just made that a really easy experience for people. You know, to be able to gain, gain access to that stuff, um, you know. So, because one of the interesting things about languages like Ruby is um, the fact that, like almost all scripting languages, have this one characteristic, which is if you need to talk to the underlying um, platform, right, to the operating system, or if you need to do something that has to run really fast, right, you almost always pull out a C compiler, right. So, all of these yeah. languages have these C-based um, um, extension interfaces, um, you know, that that people use to to build things like regex libraries and things like that. Right. Um, but so what's what's problematic somewhat, right, is if you want to build a Ruby implement. So what we the problem one of the problems we have with Iron Ruby is um, we need to essentially move over or port a set of um, existing C-based Ruby libraries as well, right? So, for example, Array, right, is all written in C right. as a library, right, for Ruby. And so, obviously, we need to, you know, port that library over. Regex is another example of a library. Um, that, that Some of has, the low-level you know, stuff. Exactly, yes. As well as, you know, platform-specific uh, things, right? Like, you know, talking, you know, opening up a socket, right, and talking to something. File right? So, those are, again, things, right, that we have. Yeah, file I.O., Right. Um, so what we need to do is take those libraries, right, and essentially map them to the underlying .NET stuff, right? Because that's 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 our platform, right? That that we're going to be, um, be integrating with. Yeah. At least you have a nice platform to map to. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're not yep. uh, you don't have to worry too much about that. How, what are some of the the places that in the in the framework that have been tricky, really, really tricky to map? Well, we really haven't gotten that far down in the implementation yet, right? So right now, in terms of Ruby, we can't—we don't really have experience in saying, well, you know, implementing Regex was a real pain, although we anticipate it being a real pain. Mm. Um, it's, you know, most of our work right now has been um, essentially getting some basic Ruby language features working, right? Like, for example, today I just got the parallel assignment stuff working. Um, so there's still a lot of 
really kind of elementary things that we're doing. But the key thing is we're doing it all the DLR way, right? So we're um, we're using the DLR to generate all of the code. So a lot of features, for example, like um, debugging support, right, um, essentially just come for free. Um, from using the DLR, um, because we take care of doing all of the right things, like emitting all of the correct debug information um, to make sure that you can just step through your um, your Ruby program, you know, inside of Visual Studio. So, looking at Jim's blog, I get the sense that Iron Python was sort of the beginning of this, building one of these dynamic languages on top of the CLR, and right. then it becomes apparent that there's some commonality between dynamic languages and what they need to work with the CLR. And it, is that where the DLR comes from? By the way, Jim's blog is at shrinkster.com slash PGO. Cool. Um, so actually what – so the, the story of Iron Python is actually a pretty interesting one, right? Um, so Jim originally started off the Iron Python project because he had heard all of this kind of negative press around the CLR about how the CLR was just a really hostile environment for dynamic languages. Right? And this, a lot of that stuff was kind of some anecdotal data that came out of this thing called Project 7, right, that was that happened in around the year 2000, I think it was. And Way the at the beginning of the, D, of the CLR. Exactly, yeah. And so there were, there were a couple of data points, you know, from ActiveState, right, where they tried to get um, their Python implementation and their Perl implementation to run on top of CLR, and they failed, right? They, you know, they were just talking about how slow it was and it wasn't usable, and unfortunately that news got picked up. Um, and, you know, by various people. And John Udell, as, as one example, was a guy that picked that up, and, you know, and he even repeated the same thing, which says, you know, the CLR was fundamentally not designed with dynamic languages in mind, right? And, in fact, you can't do a good implementation of a dynamic language on top of the CLR. So, so Jim, um, in a previous life, had also created Jython, which was the Java version of Python. Um, so Python ran on top of the JVM. And he got perfectly acceptable performance um, uh, uh, of Python running on top of JVM. So he was really kind of curious about, like, well, you know, how did Microsoft screw up so badly, right, that they created this VM that kind of looks a lot like the JVM, but yet can't run a dynamic language, right? So he essentially set off to, you know, do like a three-week um, little hacking project to see how far he could get and discover, of course, that, you know, it was had crappy performance characteristics, and that would be the end. He'd write a little paper about it, and that'd be done. But yeah, just confirm built, the the theory. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So so he went off and he he built this thing and he was actually when he started running some benchmarks against this, his little three week toy prototype of of Python running on top of CLR. He discovered that not only did it run well, it ran better than the C based implementation. <laughs> wow. Right. With three weeks of hacking. Right. So now goes, this is just wrecking the whole plan here. Right. So he's going, ah, oh, damn! I can't publish that paper. My my, <laughs> my plans are ruined. Right. I can't <laughs> just terrible make has happened. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so then he turned around and decided to, you know, spend some more time about it, you know, take, making it um, a more serious implementation. And, you know, long story short, eventually he got hired by Microsoft and he came here and, um, and was then paid to essentially finish off the implementation of Iron Python. So, so once Iron Python got finished, and right now the performance of the, the alpha of Iron Python 2.0, which is the first version of Iron Python that runs on top of DLR, is actually hovering in and around two times the performance of the C-based Python implementation. Wow. Um, you know, so not uh, a marginal improvement is what we're talking about. Here. Yeah, exactly, right? This is a significant improvement um, in performance. And uh, so there's been a lot of engineering work, right, that's been, been put into it. So it wasn't like use magic feature X of the CLR, right, and you will get better performance, right? It was really make a lot of small decisions the right way and measure each step along the way to make sure that – so it was, it was the performance at 200%. Um, or 100% performance improvement um, was really arrived at through lots and lots of little decisions, right? Not, you know, one big decision, right? Um, that was made. So it's just a lot of careful measurement and careful engineering work that resulted in, you know, that kind of great performance. Um, so after building Iron Python, you know, he realized that, well, you know, so while it's fine and dandy to build an implementation of Iron Python on top of um, CLR, it turned out to be more work, right? So there was a lot of work that had to be done, right, to, to build um, Iron Python on top of CLR. And do it well. And do it well, exactly, right? Not only well in terms of performance, but well in terms of compatibility, right, with the existing Python. And an awful lot of work was put into that as well. But on the performance side of things, you know, there was some of the obvious questions where, I, you know, would be asked is, well, 
since it was very hard for us to do this, would it be possible for us to extract out some libraries out of this stuff to make it easier for the next guy to come along that wants to implement, let's say, Ruby, right, on top of the CLR? So that was where the the genesis of the DLR idea came from, right, which was to extract some of the the core libraries and core features of Iron Python, put it into this library that we'll call the DLR, so that multiple languages can build on top of this abstraction. Recognizing that there are these common characteristics to dynamic languages that need to be translated for the CLR. I would would think that these DLR languages would work really, really well together with Link. L-I-N-Q, Link. Link, yeah. And so certainly some of the things that we can do... you know, we're we're still investigating. So 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 what's actually really interesting about the Link project is that there are an awful lot of features that the C sharp team had to invent. Right. Um, you know, in their language, right, to support Link. And perhaps the biggest feature that they had to invent was this thing called an expression tree. Um, and so what's actually very interesting about expression trees and DLR trees, so we have our own notion of a tree, right, inside of the DLR, is the remarkable parallels between um, DLR trees, or quote-unquote expression trees, right, um, and, uh, and the link-style expression trees. Now, link-style expression trees are really just for expressions, right? You can't represent entire programs, right, mm-hmm. inside of um, link expression trees. But you could, right? There's no reason why they have to just stop where they are. That's just what they needed to do to get the feature implemented. Um, whereas DLR expression trees are, in a sense, um, a superset of that, right, in that we can represent entire programs, um, inside of our trees. So there's a lot of interesting parallels, right, between, you know, what we're doing in DLR work and what um, um, the C-Sharp team is doing. Yeah. And, and it's funny how you end up with these reinventations. Is that the yes. word? But, you, yeah, you have to cre- keep implementing these things. And then every so often you got to take a step back and go, wow, you know, we're all doing the same thing here. Uh-huh, yeah. But we're approaching the problem from such different angles too, right? Yes. So, yeah, with different goals in mind. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of interesting when you see it. But it also validates our design, right? It validates our design sure. in, in terms of we, we have our own version of extension methods, for example, right? You know, so because, you know, one common little parlor trick that dynamic languages do is to allow you to attach methods, right, to types that you didn't create. Right, so if I wanted to add a, a new method to string, right, I can use extension methods in C sharp three to do that. You know, we have a similar mechanism, right, in DLR, um, in our DLR trees to allow us to add extension methods to, you know, um, system provided types as well. Now, is there any any collisions that you that you've had to deal with that uh, you have to pick one or the other, or is well, it just we're that not you actually have to... use, so so right now we're not using C sharp. Um, um, extension methods right now in our code base, right? All of our DLR code compiles using Visual Studio 2005. Right would now. it go so the have... other way around, though? I mean, would the C-sharp team say, hey, this, these DLR guys have got this thing, why should we reinvent the wheel here? Yeah, well, you know, that's a discussion for another time. Like, so there's always the, sure. you know, the, the gee, how, how could we have less code in the company, right, rather than more code in the company? Right. And, I mean, having two ways to do something is never a bad thing, um, you know. It can be. It depends on who you are. I right? suppose, you know, but, after I said that, I say, well, maybe there, <laughs> you know, maybe it maybe is. Maybe it is a bad thing. Maybe it could be. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so, you know, we, we just, we, we have to have those discussions, you know, further on. But we certainly talk a lot with the C Sharp team, right, to make sure that we're in sync with, you know, um, the kinds of ideas that they have, right? Because they're also doing a lot of very deep thinking in this area as well. Well, and it's an interesting line here. I think we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that we have one memory manager now. Yeah. You know, that we have one JIT model now, that we have a standardized security model now. We have all that stuff in the CLR. Sure. It's just the stuff that sort of bubbles to the surface. You know, the latest thinking where we're still not con- – does anybody really think they can write a better memory manager? And I know well, I there's one crazy-haired guy out there somewhere going, yes, yes, I have it right here. <laughs> right. I mean, right. really, isn't this done? Can we let it go now? Right. Yeah. So yeah. how much longer before more of these things are pushed to that level? Well, I, I, I really hope that, you know, we, we don't have to have, like, two or three DLRs, right, and, and that kind of stuff. So one of the main reasons why we are implementing four languages, right, as part of our extended team is to essentially validate the design decisions that we're making around right. the DLR itself, right? Because these are four relatively different languages, right? So, you know, you know, JS is a very different language than Ruby, right? And, and Python is a different language itself, and Visual Basic is yet another language. So hopefully that set of four languages that we picked is diverse enough that, you know, anything, that the, the abstraction, the DLR thing that we build that underpins all of that stuff will be general enough that, 
you know, other languages can, can easily be adapted to it as well. There's actually one interesting data point um, from outside of the company, which is uh, there's a fellow by the name of Peter Fisk who has now got a Smalltalk implementation up and running on top of the DLR already, and he did it in a matter oh, wow. of like a couple of weeks. Wow. And uh, so that was really impressive. Um, so Peter Fisk, is, he's got a, a blog named Vista Smalltalk, and he's got a Smalltalk implementation that um, runs entirely inside of the web browser. And he's actually building it on top huh. of Silverlight now as, as well. So, wow. so this guy's a real stud developer who's really been doing some really, really interesting things. And, Outrageous. And, uh, yeah. In terms of an external guy, he's by far done more than anybody else. Well, and what a, and, you know, I remember a few months ago, another external guy who was doing some amazing things with Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a few months ago, I swear. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it was that amazing. This, this, the thing that he did was was actually really remarkable, right? Considering he, you know, certainly had no wind of the announcement, right? He was kind of reading the news like everybody else did that day, downloaded the sources and started hacking on them, right? And, and off he went. That was yeah, that was, that was really thinking. impressive. Yeah. Got a Shrinkster link for me, Carl? That would be shrinkster.com/pgr Peter Fisk's blog. Very cool. Vista Small Talk. That guy's doing some wicked stuff. And you know, it's funny, in the past few weeks, we've had a number of shows about language extensions, uh, some out of Microsoft Research. And it, it's such a validation of the strength of the CLR that people can just sit down and build other languages uh, and yes, experiment and then, with these ideas. And really, not that far away from being able to mainstream them, because they're all sitting against this common core. And the nice thing is that, you know, for you to pick up another language, right, like a Ruby or something else, doesn't mean abandoning the, the knowledge and the skills, right, that you've already built up already, right, on top of um, the .NET libraries, right? So, you know, the, the thing that generally winds up being far more painful for people to switch to another programming language is entirely all of the things around learning another set of libraries, right? The How framework. do I open a file, right? right. Yeah, exactly, right? Where instead you can essentially use the same kinds of things that you're used to using inside of your existing languages today. Now we you you slipped a fourth language in there that I don't I'm not going to let go by in the DLR. Oh, you mean VB? I VB, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know if you know this, but there's already an implementation of VB out there. Really? Honest. Damn, and I thought we were the first. <laughs> it was an original idea. I know you thought you did it yourself, but I'm just saying. Well, I'm personally happy for this. I mean, you know, v, VB has always been sort of dynamic anyway. You know, the older versions of VB, and, um, you know, that sort of brings it home. Is that what we're talking about? Are we going, yeah, so, are we so creating a version is, of VB6? Yeah, well, not exactly, right? But, um, <laughs> but the, but the idea really is, so, so, so Paul Vick is a guy that's, that's doing, um, you know, the bulk of the work over there on the, the Visual Basic side of the house. So they're one of the extended teams that we work with. And uh, so he's got a Visual Basic implementation um, that, that runs on top of the DLR that um, that we also showed off at Mix as well as part of our four-language um, show thing that we did there. Nice. And, um, you know, so this is really a lot of the kind of plans and ideas around the next version, right? So the code name internally, but it's called VBX, right, for VB10, right? Right. Um, and uh, so... You know, it's a lot of the planning and the ideas about the next major release of Visual Basic. And, uh, you know, one of the goals for the next visual version of Visual Basic is to try and return VB more to its dynamic roots, right? And to try and give a more VB6-esque, right, you know, style of experience, right? Um, a very rapid um, application development experience. Um, so, you know, those features are, are definitely, you know, on the slate for, for this version of Visual Basic. I, I don't know exactly what all of their product plans over there in, in Visual Basic team is, you know, but certainly, you know, they are building this thing right now as a testing ground for some of our ideas about a dynamic version of Visual Basic, and it is all being built on top of DLR today. That's awesome. Yeah. Paul Vick's blog is at shrinkster.com slash PGS. Yep. Panopticon Central. Yep. I think that's a Star Trek reference, isn't it? Uh, I have to Panopticon. We've had Paul on the show before. I think he's prone to those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eric Meyer, Paul Vick, those guys are doing great stuff in the VB team over there. And don't forget Amanda Silver. And Amanda yeah. Silver. All oh, man. phenomenal stuff going Brilliant on. Brilliant people. Well, actually, Eric is over in the sequel team of all places, just so you guys know. Now, did he move? Wasn't he on a... He was on a language team or something, right? He's been there for as long right? as I've known. Okay. Him, right? But, you know, but he's just got this nice land over in SQL land, right, where you get to do crazy disruptive things at Microsoft. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think you guys are generally being disruptive. Like, you've really changed the concept of language around. 
Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun. It's interesting. And it can get you a free license or a new monitor. Uh, it, uh, this reminds me of the 80s, of that whole explosion of object-oriented languages where every time I turned around, there was another language and it was a great idea. That's, you know, small talk came from that and Lisp and and uh, Prologue and uh, Eiffel and a whole other list of languages I'd like to forget. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I think, you know, having... So so the nice thing is, is, is that if people can use the right tool for the job, right, use C-sharp words appropriate, right, you know, use Ruby words appropriate or use Python words appropriate, and, and, and where it's appropriate is going to depend on a whole bunch of things, right? For example, maybe there's a really interesting set of computational libraries, right, for Python that you want to be able to use, but you'd also like to talk to um, some .NET code, right? You know, you want to talk to SQL Server or something else, right? Right. But yet you want to do some bioinformatics processing, right, you know, which Python has traditionally been very strong in. Um, then that's a great place, right? That would be a good set of reasons for you to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I remember talking about this in the very early days of the CLR and this whole idea that you would be able to have any language you want. They were all called .NET languages then. I seem to remember Bertrand Meyer coming out with an Eiffel.net. Yep. Yep. And, and this was going to be the great thing is we had all this great thinking in all these different languages and we were going to be able to pull them together. Uh, here we are six years later and you think it's actually happening. Yeah, and I, and I think that you know, and we really like to, you know, believe that this is what's going to happen out there is that, you know, maybe this is going to, you know, like today, right, the vast majority of all libraries that people use in .NET are written in C Sharp. Right. And, you know, it would be really interesting to see if, you know, down the road, you know, a significant percentage of libraries for .NET would, or new libraries, really, right, for .NET would be written using Python or Ruby or some other kind of language that will run on top of DLR. And, you know, so this is one of these, you know, chicken and egg problems, right? You know, so um, hopefully we'll we'll get to a point where some people go off and build the next great library, right, using a dynamic language instead of a statically typed language, just to see, um, you know, what what is possible. You know, the, the dynamic languages haven't been without their critics, right? I mean, sure. In fact, I was just reading an article from Hacknot. I think it's a blog, and and it's titled "Invasion of the Dynamic Language Weenies." <laughs> at shrinkster.com slash pgt. And he, he has, it starts with the definition of weenie, which is one, a frankfurter or a similar sausage. Two, informal, one who displays a degree of enthusiasm for some subject or activity disproportionate to the import that most would afford it. Sure. So, you know, uh, there, there's an old term, the smug lisp weenie, right? That, yeah. That's always been out there, right? <laughs> so what are the, what are the critics saying about dynamic languages? Well, a lot of the things that, that the critics like to say about dynamic languages is that, you know, the whole idea there is to try and delay certain errors, right? Detection of certain errors until runtime, right? Because there is no separate compilation step, right, you know, beforehand. Um, you know, so, so static type systems, you know, allow you to do all of this really nice compile time analysis around the correctness of your, your software, right? And for certain types of errors, that's absolutely true. Yeah. However, I think that in today's day and age with today's kind of software engineering methodologies, right, where people are far more prone to be writing unit tests um, around yeah, their code than they were tests. 10 years ago, right, that your unit tests are going to be catching a lot of the same kinds of errors that your 
um, your statically typed compilers, right? We're catching for you, in the, in the, in, and 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 also doing far more than that, right? Because right. clearly, we're not shipping code simply because the compiler says okay, it compiled with no warnings and no errors, right? It must sure. be perfect. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. You know. <laughs> but the tests so, actually prove that they do what they claim to do. Right. So, so the idea is that unit tests and your compiler are doing redundant things. Right. Right. You know, so can we trade off? So, so nothing in life is free, right? So static type systems also allow the compiler to do much smarter things about optimizations, right? Because it yeah. knows the types of things. It can generate the most efficient code based on, you know, a priori knowledge of the types of the things that it's manipulating. However, dynamically typed languages don't really have the same luxury of that, right? You know, so a lot of those same kinds of operations that were done at compile time now have to be done at runtime. So you're now going to pay a runtime cost, right, for some of these features. But what you get in return is faster development, right? So we're not optimizing CPU cycles anymore. We're trying to optimize people cycles, right, Right. through um, dynamic languages. And since people cycles generally, depending on your application, are more expensive, right, than CPU cycles in terms of dollars, you know, it's in, in some cases, right, much better to optimize that way instead. Well, we've got a lot of horsepower these days. Let me ask you this question. Can you do, can you, should you use a dynamic language if you're not using test-first methodologies? I don't think you should be using any language if you're not doing some kind of, you know, unit testing, right, inside of the software that you're creating. I think that's that's just a thing that we have for software, period, right? You know, and while sure, certain types of simpler errors can be caught by your type system, right, in, in your compiler, um, in, in static languages that you won't catch in dynamic languages, but still, you still should be, you know, writing tests for all those things. That's nice to say, but saying that, I mean, in reality, how what percentage of professional development teams are using tests? And I, I'm not talking about unit tests. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about tests first, specifically, which is... Well, test first you know, sort of is, you know, one of those extreme. kind of dogmatic positions, right? Yeah, you know, extreme that, position. Um, it's nice that people take an extreme stance, hoping to swing this pendulum towards that, further towards that, right? But, you know, it's always dangerous, right, when you say thou shalt always do X. Yeah, sure. Right? You know, um, because sometimes those things can be... So let me give you an example, right, of where a test first thing, right, is actually somewhat um, a drag on productivity, right? Which is... You know, at some point in time, right, well, well, not generally you always get your designs wrong, right? Like you know that, you know, when you first start off on some project, right, some design that you had in your head for that, that thing never ultimately winds up being the final design that you ship. Mm-hmm. So along the way, if you built up an enormous testing infrastructure, right, around what you thought the design was up front, right, on things that you know will mutate a lot, right, mm-hmm. it's very, very hard to morph your testing infrastructure as your design is changing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so for certain things, right, you want to be more fluid at times. And for other things, you want to be more rigid at times. Right. So it it kind of, again, it depends on how well you know the problem domain and how well you can think about and and reason about the problem that you have. Getting back to this um, issue about who tests and who doesn't, the server side did a survey back in March. I think it was Uh in March 2007 or earlier. Uh, and they asked the following questions. Let me read some of these answers to you. Sure. Within your organization, who is responsible for testing? 48% answered the original developer was, with 45% stating they had a separate QA process. Mm-hmm. Second question, do you have any formal testing procedures? 54% answer that they do not, with only 10% claiming they have a strict policy to follow. Right. Three, do you have a staging environment? 66% stated no, they do not. Four, how much faith do you have in open source components? That's not really relevant when a new component is released. Uh, okay, so the rest of it isn't really relevant, but that, but that staging environment and the formal testing procedures has got to make you go, yeah, 54% of these people, if they, uh, you know, the people doing software, if they're embracing dynamic languages because it makes their job easier and they're not doing test-driven development or unit testing at all, yeah, and I think those people are going to be in for more hurt than they would have been in having some other language. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But they're still going to be in for some hurt no matter what. Yeah, exactly, right? They're still going to ship crappy software, right? One well, they way might, or another. you know, think, oh, hey, everybody's going back to, uh, you know, variants and script languages and Yahoo, let's have yeah, at it. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, I want to go back to, like, some of the variant things, right? There was this, 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 this perception of dynamic languages being extremely dangerous, right, because of implicit type conversions that would happen in certain languages, right? So JS is a notorious example of this. Right. right. So in JS, if you had X is equal to two being the number two plus two in quotation marks, right? What's the answer? 
Right. So in JS, the answer is 22 as a string, <laughs> right? Because it implicitly converts the number to a string, and the plus operator does a concatenation for you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 22, right? So so it's so obviously in that one, it's pretty obvious, right? But if it was, you know, x equal to a plus b, right, where a was a string and b was a number, right? Right. You'd get these weird results, right? So implicit type conversions are generally a language-specific thing, right? So in Ruby, that would throw an error, right, which is what you would expect, right, because there's no clear thing that you're trying to do here, trying to add a number in a string. And so the so that's partly a language thing, right? Um, and I think that certain, so dynamic languages as a whole kind of got tarred with that one example, yeah. right, where, you know, behind your back, an implicit type conversion was being done that you didn't know about, that you can't figure out by reading the, 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 the lines of code. You only find out when you run it. Right, right. Right. And that's when things become dangerous. And there's no way to specifically cast it to a thing if the if the uh, interpreter gets it wrong. I also want to mention that I, I said it was the server side that uh, posted. The server side just posted a link to it. The survey was done by Alan Williamson uh, at shrinkster.com/pgu. He posts the results and he uh, got 455 replies in a 48 hour period. He just put up a link on his blog. A little so, survey. Yeah. Little survey. Informal yeah. survey. Sure. So John. Tell me about the one true object. <laughs> so, with regard to the one true object, right? Like, so when you're you're building um, type systems, right? So, you essentially at some point, right, say, okay, what's the root of your type system, right? Right. And each programming language um, will have their own, you know, root. Right, the one true object. Right, you know, Python has its version of it. You know, Ruby has its own version, and of course, .NET has its own version. So, one of the things that you can wind up creating initially inside of your type system is, um, you know, separate roots. Right. So, you've got your .NET object, right, System object. Right. You've got your Python object, right. Your, you know, the, the root of the Python hierarchy. Yep. And for each language, right, there's a separate one. And when you have a string, well, you have a Python string, and then you have a .NET string, and you have a Ruby string, and you have a so on and so forth, right? Um, so rather than do things that way by essentially wrapping, right, existing types, right, that, so, so obviously the Python string would probably just wrap a real CLR string, right? Right. Well, it isn't a CLR string, right? Is a will not re- return true in this case, right? Um, but it's just this other thing that wraps it, right? So the problem with wrapping is, of course, as you can imagine, right? You get this explosion in the number of types that you have in your type system to, right. to manage and maintain. And interoperability becomes a really, really hard problem all of a sudden, right? Because it's not just a string that you're passing around as a Python string versus a Ruby string versus a JS string. Um, so instead, you know, what we do in the DLR is that each type is the actual underlying type, right? So an integer is, an, is, a, is a CLR integer. A string is a, um, a .NET string, unless the semantics are different in your language, hmm. right? Um, so that, again, simplifies everything. And where we need to introduce new methods, right, to the .NET string to handle, let's say, Python semantics, right? So how um, Python um, uppercases a string versus how um, .NET uppercases a string, we can add a, the, the Python method for uppercasing a string um, to the real string, so the extension method idea. The extension right. method, so, right. Yeah. So, it, wow, um, it's sort of like using dynamic languages to make dynamic languages. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of what it's... So, it's, it's, cool. so it, it's a much harder engineering challenge, right, to make that work, right, in reality, um, because there's weird things we have to make sure that we get correct with identity. And then there's somewhat more challenging things, like, for example, um, .NET strings are immutable, um, Python yeah. strings are immutable, but Ruby strings are immutable strings. Huh. Right. So, so with that, then now, of course, obviously, right. Uh, when is a string a string, right? So it's so in Ruby, it's going to be a different, right, than than the other languages. So we will likely build our Ruby string implementation around a string builder type, right, uh-huh. as opposed to using the underlying string, right, because we have to respect the, you know, this the, the fact that Ruby strings can change at any point in time. Now that doesn't does that mean that. Uh just doing regular old string manipulation in Ruby is going to have more overhead when your strings are small and less when they're big? Well, more or less depending on how you look at it. So so one, one example I like to, to cite here is, you know, people like concatenating strings and loops, right? It just it seems to be like a natural way oh, of doing I wish something they would and expressing things, right? Well, you're, you're <laughs> saying you wish they would stop that, right? But But why, right? The reason why you want them to stop that is because of the underlying implementation of strings, right? And that yeah, strings I are guess immutable, you're right. I guess you're right. right. But in terms of, I want to 
mash a bunch of things together, right? How much more obvious a way of doing it than stick it in a loop and use the plus operator, right, right. to concatenate your strings, right? So in Ruby, if you were to write code that way, it would be perfectly okay, right? Because essentially it's using a string builder, right? The strings themselves are mutable, right? right? And uh, so you're going to get... The, so the most obvious implementation of Ruby is also going to be a fast implementation, right? Unlike in C-sharp, right, or Visual Basic, where the most obvious implementation is the slowest possible way that you can do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's very true. Yep. I only say don't do that because it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> if it didn't hurt, I wouldn't say don't do that. Yeah. Well, we're just trying to make things hurt less for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mono. Ah, yes. It's a disease uh, that you get in high school when you kiss <laughs> your girlfriend. When you kiss some girl that you weren't supposed to. Yeah. We'll just cut that out after disease and leave it at that. <laughs> so Miguel Diacaso has been around, huh? Yeah, exactly. So we, we had Miguel. We just ran a well, – so Miguel um, – I love hanging out with Miguel. And, oh, yeah. Uh, He's fun. So we um, – so we, we spent some quality time together again at, at, at Mixes here, right? He was there for the announcements for all of this kind of stuff. And um, just last week, we held a compiler dev lab on campus here, and Miguel came out to that as well. So the, the great news about Mono is that those guys already have um, DLR up and running successfully on Mono, right? Wow. Off of the trunk version of Mono, not in the released version, right? Because it turned out that the DLR exposed some bugs in their implementation, right, that they had to fix. So mostly in their compiler implementation. Um, so it took those guys 16 days. Um, start to finish to um, get DLR up and running successfully on top of Mono. Um, what's also cool is those guys are going to go off and build an implementation of Silverlight as well, right? They call it the Moonlight Project. And um, <laughs> they, uh, so they're, they, they've got some other libraries over there that they're, they're hacking together to do video playing and a bunch of other things, right? Um, you know, so they can get a Silverlight up, uh, implementation up and top, uh, running on top of Mono and Linux as well. So the cool thing is that the DLR, since we are releasing it under the MSPL, right, the Microsoft Permissive License, um, that effectively allows them to redistribute, right, the DLR, right, with right. their stuff, right. So they don't have to implement the DLR at all. They can just ship it, right, which is a really great thing for those yeah. guys, and they're really, really happy about, you know, the licensing terms that we released all this stuff for. Under- and that definitely is going to help the thing grow. This compiler lab fascinates me. So what was the purpose from Microsoft's point of view to put something like this together, bring all these guys in? Well, the compiler lab, you know, like it's, it's really a, you know, a platform thing, right? So we want more people building languages on top of our platform, right? right. So it's in our own interest to invite people from the languages community that would be interested in building languages, um, you know, to, to start building stuff on top of our stuff and to give them whatever help, right, that they need. So the format of the compiler lab was essentially we would give them talks in the morning and the afternoon was free hacking time, right? And members of the dev team were were in the room, right, all afternoon. Uh, most of our team was kind of camped out over in Building 20 um, in the afternoons. And so that when people ran into problems as they were implementing things, they could just walk over to the guy that built the feature, right, and get their questions asked. Yeah, it's pretty hard to resist. Yeah, so we blame that guy over there, right? Yeah, you know, he wrote it. <laughs> yeah. And um, so that was really useful. We had a couple of guys. So the guys that made the most progress at the uh, at the dev labs was um, there, there were a couple of guys that – um, have a company called New Atlanta, and uh, they have a cold fusion interpreter called oh. Blue Dragon. And uh, so those guys, um, they have a lot of big customers, right? Because there's there's big companies, and MySpace is probably their biggest, most visible customer, right, for their their cold fusion interpreter. And you know they use it because it's faster, right, than the existing um, um, cold fusion interpreter by originally, um, I guess. Uh, Mac, what was Alaire, and then Macromedia, and then Adobe now, right? Right. As, yeah. Uh, yeah, the company's got bought. Um, but it's, it's, their implementation is actually faster than the native one, right? So people actually run, um, you know, websites on top of their cold fusion implementation because of the performance characteristics. And so what they have now done is they've started implementing their cold fusion interpreter, which is just a pure interpreter today, right, on top of DLR. And they actually got simple expressions and assignments and things working by the end of the, the dev lab. And apparently on the plane ride home, I was just reading his blog that he, uh, he successfully got debugging support, um, integrated into Visual Studio as well. Wow. And, and that days. lab was only Very a couple cool. of days. It was three days, yeah. Wow. Man. Yeah. And he said some really nice things on his blog, like it, you know, it saved us, you know, saved them like a month of dev time hacking on this thing, right? Just getting the, you know, the questions asked and answered right away. Wow. That's serious. Well, and just an interesting, you know, set of thinking around opening up the, giving people these opportunities to use this underlying framework, which is, you know, once again, we see the CLR, a very mature piece of code for building these other things on top of. 
So I don't have to worry about those things. Well, John, are you going to be speaking anywhere anytime soon? What do you, you know, uh, can we expect to see you somewhere? So, so the plan right now is um, at OzCon, um, O'Reilly runs uh, the open source conference um, um, each year. This year it's July 23rd um, in Portland. And uh, so hopefully what, the, what we're planning on doing is, is releasing the first source code release of Iron Ruby um, at OzCon. And I'm doing a talk there as well, so we'll, we'll do the announce and, and the talk at the same time. Um, and uh, let's see, later on this year, there's going to be um, the, the RubyConf, um, the, the international RubyConf, um, which is going to be held, um, I believe it's somewhere in North Carolina this year. Right, so I'll be there in October as well. Uh-huh. Great. So those are my only two big speaking dates, I think, that I've got planned for the rest of the year. Yeah, you're a pretty busy guy these days, I take it. Yeah, yeah, you know, like speaking is a lot of fun. I love talking to customers and stuff about things, but at some point in time, we still have to build this thing, right? Right. <laughs> Instead of just <laughs> announcing stuff that we're going to do. <laughs> so can we talk about anything further out than, than Iron Ruby? What's next? Well, I would love to be able to think about what's next, right? It's just, you know, we've got, we did the announced mix, we showed the, the, the demoed mix, but now we just have to make all of that stuff real, right? Like the mix stuff was real code running on top of DLR, but it's, it was a bunch of shortcuts we had to do in order to get the demo up and running and working, right? Right. Now we're spending time to do things properly now, and, and, uh, and our first source code release is going to show how to do things properly, right? If you were to build a Ruby on top of DLR, you know, what would the, what would the coding patterns and idioms be for building a language? And I gotta think once those four languages are built, the DLR is gonna be different than it is at this very moment. Absolutely. Ruby is already forcing changes on the, on the DLR right wow. now. And I think and about what happened to the CLR when they made it run under SQL Server, which, mm-hmm. you know, some could debate was a good idea, was ever a good idea at all, but the real upside to it is it made the CLR a better product. Yeah, it's really great when you have a very important customer, right, that is very demanding at the same time, that yes. isn't that far away from you. and yeah, Knows where you live. Like, yeah, yep. exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They come over and camp out at your door and yell at you until you get stuff right, and, and or just cut your product out of their, their thing, right, if you don't meet their quality bars. Yeah, all yeah. That stuff. yeah. Yeah. So I got to think, I mean, the DLR, in some ways, the uh, the whole compiler lab was that kind of exercise for you is taking these really bright guys that know their way around languages and saying, does this help you? How could exactly. it help you more? Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, Rodrigo was there from the Boo Project as well. And uh, so we spent some time talking to, to Rodrigo. Rodrigo's, um, he's got a very interesting language, right? Because Boo is a statically typed language with a Python-style syntax right. um, that has optional dynamic typing in it, right? Now, um, optional so in some typing. sense, it's kind of similar to VB.net, right, in that way, right? Because it's hmm. statically typed with optional kind of dynamic So it's typing. like option strict off kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so they can do a lot of things where they infer types and that kind of stuff automatically for you, right, you know, hmm. inside of Boo. And uh, so he was actually very, you know, interested in trying to get, take advantage of some of the performance work that we've done inside of DLR, right? So he's going to spend some time, you know, um, seeing what it would take to, to get Boo up and running on top of DLR as well. Huh. Yeah, so a lot, lots and lots and lots of people. Do you ever get the chance to write code in these dynamic languages, to write, you know, real projects beyond just simple test harnesses and things? Yeah, so that's always the challenge, right, is, you know, getting the time to do the app building exercises that you need, right, to, um, to do that. Like I, so one of the things about Ruby CLR is Ruby CLR is roughly 50% of the code base of Ruby CLR was written in Ruby itself. Right. And, uh, so, so that was a really nice thing to force me, right, to code every day in Ruby, right, since most of the really kind of hard stuff in Ruby CLR was actually all implemented in Ruby. Um, it's all very recursive. Yeah. Um, but these days, right, like, you know, most of the time is spent writing stuff in C-sharp, right, since, you know, Iron Ruby itself and the DLR are both implemented in, in C-sharp. Actually, an interesting data point for people out there is that um, um, the managed JS implementation is actually implemented in Visual Basic. Oh, I read that somewhere. Yeah. Cool. Because John Hamby, who's the architect that, that runs that project, right, used to be on the VB team. I believe he's still in the VB team, I think, in his reporting structure. So. Well, I've been, I've been doing some really cool things in VBNet lately that I, that I have been trying to, well, I don't want to say what it is right now, but uh, let's just say sort of the culmination of, of all the things that I've been interested in programming over the years. And I still love it. I love that language. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some people really, you know, like they absolutely love the language. It feels like home, 
right to them, and you know it should be something. And the the cool thing about like Visual Basic is the fact that well, you can go off and build a compiler in it, right? If that's what you want to do. Wasn't that the measure that the C guys always use to say that this is why it isn't a real language because it can't build a compiler? <laughs> or it can't compile itself in it, right? There you go. Yeah. yeah. There's always the interesting academic, you know, you got to build the, the language in the language itself. Right. Well, John and Sarah, we're coming towards, sort of towards the end of the show. Is there anything we missed? Oh, gosh. Well, you guys didn't ask me about why um, you think dynamic languages, or in particular, why is Ruby interesting? Yeah, I've been wondering about your fixation on Ruby. Right. Like, you know, because I think Ruby itself as a language is... So rather than just kind of saying Ruby is a dynamic language and dynamic languages are interesting because, right, I like to think about it as, well, Ruby itself is interesting because. Um, Because certainly if you look at all of the dynamic languages that are in kind of common use out there today right now. Um, in terms of buzz, right, you know, Ruby by far has more buzz about it than any of the other languages today. Yeah. And, you know, that's largely due to the fact that there's this one interesting little library, right, that people really like, which is Rails. Yeah. And, you know, Rails as a library is very, very interesting for a number of reasons. Um, one of the really interesting things about Rails is, effectively, it's a um, domain-specific language, right, for building web applications. Right, and it's not just a DSL, but it's an internal DSL. Right, it's a distinction that Mark Fowler likes to make. And an internal DSL is a DSL that's hosted inside of a general-purpose language like a Ruby. And Ruby's syntax is so malleable that it is actually very, very easy um, for you to kind of morph the language into looking. So you can add things to the language that look like they were built into the language, that things that look like keywords, that feel like keywords, but aren't. They're just method calls. Right, and that's all possible because parentheses are optional, right? right. In Ruby, where it's not a, the syntax isn't ambiguous. Um, so that kind of stuff, right? Those little small attention to detail things in the design of the Ruby language itself enables these really interesting scenarios, like these internal DSLs. So Ruby is really, or sorry, Rails is really just a DSL for building web applications. Right. There's another one I like to talk about, which is Rake, um, which is Ruby Make, right? Which is a DSL for huh. doing build systems. And if you think about, you know, the kind of pain that we have in build systems today, right? Like, you know, it all kind of, it's, it's all James Duncan Davidson's fault, right? If we want to blame one guy, right? So, <laughs> you know, James Duncan Davidson created Ant, right, way back when, you know, legend has it on a plane ride somewhere, right? And so he was, he was hacking over some ocean, um, you know, he thought, well, you know, I want to do this build system, right, and I'm just going to do it with XML, right? Because why? But because I can, right? Yeah. And it's easy to write a parser, right? And so the problem is, you know, so Ant kind of, you know, begat all sorts of other things, right, that, that used, you know, XML a lot. And the problem is when you look at an Ant build script or an Ant build script or an MS build build script or whatever, these are all declarative languages, right? So, so the idea was that we're trying to be declarative and we'll use XML to do that. But what's the problem is at some point in time, you want to do something that's not declarative, right? You want to do a loop, for example. Right? right. So you'll see that there's these abominations like for each things that you're writing entirely inside of XML, right? You know, in order to do loops and iterations and things, or control flow, if then else type things. Right? You can do all of those things. At some point you will need to do all of those things in a complicated build script or you know, or deployment script. Sooner or later. Right. Exactly, yeah. It's inevitable. Right. You know, certainly the toy examples at the beginning where you just compile this target depends on those other targets and we feed these things all through some compiler, fine, right? That works great. But at some point in time, these things are real programs. Now, the nice thing about Rake is that it allows you to say this target depends on these other targets, right, or tasks in, in the Rake um, um, terminology. But when you need to do a loop, you're still in Ruby, right? So you do, you do a loop the Ruby way, right? You don't have to go off. You can shell out to the, to the, um, the, the language outside of it, you know, very easily, right, because it is actually just that language, um, you know, when I built Ruby CLR, as another example, um, uh, I stretched Ruby syntax to the point where I can embed IL statements in line inside of my Ruby code. Nice. Right? And I would generate um, real .NET IL coming out the other side. That's nice. So, so you know, it's so the syntax is flexible enough so that I can have inline IL right inside of my Ruby programs. And, you know, so... I think those are really interesting examples that people can kind of at least know because they're real, right? They're really concrete examples of things that people have successfully used to do things. Rails, perhaps, is the prettiest example of all of these things, right? Because, you know, the Rails team spends an awful lot of time worrying about aesthetics of code and what things look like. 
and you know, largely due to the fact that it's, of course, much harder to read code than it is to write code. Right? right. So trying to optimize for readability is actually a very important thing that you should strive to do as a programmer. I agree. And by the way, Rake uh, Ruby Make is at shrinkster.com slash PGV. And um, so I think that, you know, when you kind of take all these things together, right, um, that's what I think makes Ruby a very interesting language. So you can imagine that people start thinking about, well, is there a way for me to build a domain-specific language that tries to solve some business problem that I have? Right, you know. So before I came to Microsoft, the last consulting um, thing that I did while I was at Object Sharp was with a company called Husky, and they built these giant injection molding machines that make all these plastic things. Hmm. And they have a real configuration problem, right? Because they build these machines, right? These machines are essentially almost all custom. There's almost always custom software on each machine, and just configuring these things, right, which component needs to be installed on the machine, right, and, and all that kind of stuff is this huge problem these guys have that they solve through this crazy set of, you know, um, combination of C files and custom scripting language and a custom declarative xml kind of language that they all invented over the years, right, to kind of make this whole thing work. Hmm. Um, instead, they're replacing that thing with a Ruby thing. Right, where they're they're describing things using this domain-specific language, which really maps onto their model of how to build machines. So there's lots and lots and lots of really interesting examples like that. So I really think that Ruby is a very interesting language for enterprise software developers um, because it allows them to more easily model their business right in such a way that it's very, very readable to the point, arguably, where business domain guys, right, domain experts in the business could write chunks of code. Right? Oh, man. You're getting a headache now. Well. We're really going to get there? That's are an gonna, interesting uh, thing. I don't think you, it's necessarily – so it's not going to be these guys are going to build the whole system this way. It's that they can certainly write their acceptance tests, right, for the code that has to do things right. in a very DSL-y kind of way. Mm, right? Yeah, it, it, it's almost like you're backing into macros here. Yeah. In and, some ways – Sort of. Are yeah. you going to teach them how to do test-driven development too? Well, they would essentially write the tests, right? I see. Right. So their user acceptance test would say, you know, the output of this thing must be this, right? Right. Given so they set of so they have to know how to use the testing yeah. tools. So rather than writing a word document, right, to describe the scenarios, right? Why can't we have these guys writing code? Oh man! Wow. That's oh, scary. you're asking for it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you have to be at least uh, somewhat controversial, right? And you know, yeah, chat, right? yeah. I don't know. Well, how, let's get. To, I'm sure we'll get a few emails on that one. Yeah, I thought managed JavaScript was enough. <laughs> what's a what? What's what's a Donet rocks with a little bit of controversy? That's right. <laughs> that's right. So you have to take your extreme position and, and, and stand by. But there but again, go. these DSL ideas are actually really good, right? Simply because it's so much easier to read the code that people have written before you. Yeah. And, and and distill it down to the essential business logic you were trying to do with all the yeah. plumbing away. Yeah, let's 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 reason about the problem in the problem domain, not in the implementation domain. All right, and on that note, let's uh, let's wrap it up. John's blog is at iunknown.com. Go check it out. John, it's been great having you on the show. Oh, thanks, guys. It's it's been a lot of fun. And good luck with the DLR. Oh, thanks. We'll check in soon. Yeah. Yep, we'll do. And as for you, dear listener, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a